Chapter 5 in the Sunzu against Fizya and Abhinami. This one is actually interesting because um, you know, it's not only about physiognomy. Um, physiognomy is where you're judging somebody's uh, character or even feature based on their facial features. So, uh, I don't know about the West, but in the um, in East Asia, there's a whole kind of science behind this. Well, actually, you know, there, there is a sort of, the West did engage in this for kind of racial purposes. Um, and uh, this, this isn't quite what that, um, what physiognomy, um, physiognomy is in the ancient, uh, in ancient China. So it, it's really kind of, it's more like telling your future by looking at uh, the palm of someone's hand. You know, you do palm readings and supposedly that'll tell you about your future. Um, so, you know, th there's something similar with that with a person's face. So, um, you know, they kind of tell your fortune based off of your facial structure and your facial appearance. So that's kind of what's been happening here. And so um, this is a popular enough practice back in Shunzu's time where he's devoting a few good pages um, to that at the beginning of his, of his uh, chapter five. So what's nice is that uh, he dismisses this. Um, what he says is, uh, if you're concerned about your fortune, becoming a Junza is good fortune, becoming a petty man is called ill fortune. Now, he's not saying that materialistically good things will happen to you if you are Junzo or not. Um, that's clearly, that idea is clearly contradicted in a later chapter where he talks about the difference, um, or actually it's not um, just the later chapter, but throughout the text, um, there's a difference between somebody who has, um, who is honorable internally versus externally. Right. So if you're honored externally, that has to do with your circumstances, your fate, what kind of society basically you get to live in. Um, whether you are honorable internally, that's up to you as a person. So our society today is not a good society, morally speaking. And so we honor people who are really awful people uh, internally. So they don't have virtue. They are not people of Ren. They're not people of Yi, uh, and yet they have the highest honor. They have positions of power, positions of status. They have a lot of money. They have, um, oh, you know, um, all the things that come with, with that. So he's saying fortune in terms of what's really, truly important, not material wealth and social status. Yao and Shun and Wen and the Duke of Zhou and Confucius, these are all men of great virtue in the Ru tradition. So Yao is the founder of the um, possibly the earliest known Chinese dynasty, uh, or at least the dynasty that can be most um, associated uh, with a notion of China. And, um, you know, I say a notion of China because 
throughout history you'll have different dynasties and they will all claim to be kind of the inheritors of this sort of lineage. Um, what does it mean to be Chinese? It's not really easy an easy question to answer. Um, I think the best way to understand it by now at this point of history is to understand that you are the inheritors of this lineage. So if you look at um, China today, it's nothing like the, I don't know, the Zhou dynasty, which is kind of the role, the role model dynasty uh, for the Ru tradition. But the Zhou dynasty isn't even the origin, original dynasty for what's called the central states or uh, the Zhong, um, you know, the, the middle kingdom as is sometimes translated. Um, you have the Xia dynasty that's about 2200 BC um, and that's founded by the sage King Yao and his successor is the sage king Shun. And then after that comes uh, the sage king Yu. Um, it ends with the tyrant Jie. The tyrant Jie is overthrown by the founder of the Shang dynasty, also known as the Ying dynasty. And that uh, founding king is Tang. The Shang dynasty is established um, in the mid middle of the 1700s BC, I have a number here. It says 1766 BCE. Uh, again, the the founder is Tang, um, and then the the uh, last of the of its rulers is a tyrant Zhou. Um, I might be mispronouncing some of these names. The founder of the Zhou dynasty, the Zhou dynasty, um, you know, not the same as the Tyrant Zhou, but the Zhou dynasty. The Zhou dynasty uh, is founded by King Wen, and then his uh, successor is King Wu, and then after that is the Duke of Zhou. He is not a king; he's a regent. A regent is a person who rules instead of the of the king, because King um, Cheng is too young to rule. The Duke of Zhou, usually when this happens, uh, unfortunately in dynasties, usually what happens in not just, um, you know, this is not something that is unique to China. This is um, something you find in monarchies all over the place. Something that could happen is that um, when the uncle rules, uh, he keeps his power and um, the, the young boy king never ends up being king and in fact he's either exiled and or um, executed one way or the other so the royal family stays the same but the lineage um, has been altered to put nicely the duke of Zhou does not do this after king chung becomes ruler um, becomes old enough to rule on his own he steps aside and uh, you know pays homage as a subject and uh, but the Duke of Zhou is so honored that um, at least I've heard that King Chung does not allow um, the Duke of Zhou to bow to him okay so the the, the Zhou dynasty is the, the dynasty con that Confucius is born into but by the time he's born into it uh, so the Zhou dynasty is founded I have here um, 1122 BC, okay? 
Now it falls with the Qin Dynasty in 221 BC. So this is a very long dynasty, very long-lived dynasty, okay? Almost a thousand years long. And um, by the time Confucius is, is, um, is born, the dynasty um, has, in a political sense, fallen apart. And Confucius is trying to restore some of the original ways of the Zhou dynasty. And by the time that Mencius and Shunzi are alive, some 200 uh, years have passed since the time of Confucius. And um, we see basically the rise of the Qin dynasty. So the Qin is actually one of the smaller uh, states of the empire. So the, the, the empire is large and there's many different kingdoms within it. Um, and, you know, you will see some of them mentioned throughout the Shunzhou. Uh, so one of them is Qin, that, that, that kingdom uh, within the dynasty conquers its neighbors and, and then basically overthrows the Zhou dynasty. Okay. But this is not a sage king who establishes this new dynasty. So this new dynasty doesn't last very long, depends, depends on how you add it up. It lasts less than 15 years, according to most historians. Um, but it basically doesn't survive the second generation of the royal family. And that itself is replaced in 206 BC by the Han dynasty. Right? Now that's, uh, that is a Confucian dynasty. The Qin dynasty is a legalistic regime and does not really uh, pay much uh, attention to the teachings of Confucius or the root tradition as a whole. So we look at Yao and Shun and Wen and, Zhou and the Duke of Zhou and uh, these are all role model kings and all these people um, have some sort of unattractive feature about them you know and uh, their ministers also are uh, likewise a mixed bag. So he's basically saying there's not a good correlation between how a human being looks and what kind of person he is inside, his virtue. On the other hand, you have a number of these tyrants, right? Jie and Zhou, uh, the last rulers who lost their, um, their ancestors' royal house, uh, and they get overthrown. These guys are really tall, handsome, strong, you know, energetic, powerful. Um, nevertheless, he says they were put to death and their states perished. They became the greatest disgraces in the world. And discussions by subsequent generations about badness are sure to mention them. This was not a fault. It's not due to a fault in appearance, but rather because their understanding was deficient. Um, and their judgments were base, vulgar, low level. Okay. So this is this is good because the real theme of this chapter is not about physiognomy, but it's uh, rather asking this question by what is that by which humans are humans? I say it is because they have distinctions. All right. So in other words, what makes a human being a human being? So this is a very important question because 
there's always been this other question that's related to it, which is what actually makes human beings different from animals? And related to that is why are human beings more valuable or superior to, to animals? And that's a question people are asking today. Um, they come to this question, I think, in a different way. Uh, they think in terms of equality, they, they look around and say, well, we're all living beings. We all can feel pain and suffering. Uh, we all have emotions. So why is it that my life as a human being is any better? And they also have, you know, a lot of people have pets. They love their pets more than their neighbors and sometimes even their own family members, which is rather kind of sad. Not, you know, um, I can understand somebody who would, who, would, who would not try to make a comparison, but some people are, are just kind of blatant about it and they just, you know, will say that they love their dogs more than their parents, and that's really sad. Uh, so there's there's kind of this question. Now, I have my own formulation of this, uh, of an answer to this, but let's go look at, see what Shunzo has to say. Um, there's this really interesting paragraph. Uh, desiring food when hungry, desiring warmth when you're cold, desiring rest when tired, liking the beneficial and hating the harmful, these things people have from birth. These one does not have to await, but are already so. So everybody has this. Babies have this. You don't have to learn it, right? You don't have to uh, cultivate this. This is what both you, the sage king, and Jia, the tyrant, both share. However, that by which humans are human is not because they are special and having two legs and no feathers, but because they have distinctions. Two legs and no feathers. This is kind of a famous formulation. In fact, I believe Plato, uh, all the way across half across the world, uh, independently came up with that formulation as well. What is a human being? Well, two legs and no feathers. Um, and, uh, you know, he's trying to find the human being there. And there's a philosopher, I think his name is Diogenes or Diogenes. Um, and he, he walks in one day, um, not wearing clothes, but having kind of uh, stuck a bunch of feathers with glue to himself and said uh, something like, I'm not a human being. I, I forget what, what it was exactly. But that's not really what's going on here. He's saying it's, human beings are not human because they have two legs and feathers. In other words, human beings are not human beings because of their form, not because of their physical form, right? I mean, you don't, if somebody loses his leg in a war, he doesn't stop, stop being a human being all of a sudden, okay? Uh, it's rather because they have distinctions. I'm reading this out loud because this paragraph is really well stated. Now, the ape's form is such that it too has two feet and no feathers, but the gentleman, the Junza, sips ape soup and eats ape meat. In other words, he gets to eat animals, and that would be considered reprehensible to eat another human being. Uh, that Thus, that by which humans are humans not because they are special and having two legs and no feathers but rather because they have distinctions now he gives some examples here the birds and the beasts have fathers and sons but not the intimate relationship of father and son they have the male sex and the female sex but no differentiation between the male and the female by of, dis, uh, distinction of course we're not talking about physical distinction we're talking about how they behave and how they relate to each other. So the way that women and men relate to each other, particularly husband and wife, is different than the way that 
animal females and male females relate to each other. Same thing with a, with a father and son. So most animals, you know, they have fathers, they have mothers, and at some point they leave. They don't even seem to really recognize it anymore. That's that uh, the re, you know that's why sometimes you have this uh, really kind of gross situation where uh, there'll be this dominant male, um, and it'll be so dominant that it'll it'll start reproducing with the uh, its daughters and granddaughters. Um, there's one story that I read in the news about a bear that did that in its, its territory. Um, you know the, that's pretty awful, um, and it's not like the animals have no ability to tell relations, you know, they can do these things through smell and that kind of thing, uh, to some extent. Um, but in any case, the birds and bees, at some point, they just leave, they never reconnect again. You know, once the bird leaves the nest, they never reconnect with their parents. We don't know if they even remember their parents. Uh, between the male and female, the differentiation comes in the form of things like marriage. So, you know, most, most animals, what they do is that they mate, for one season with one pair and then they have another coupling another pair. Uh, there are some birds that, that will mate for life and bond for life. Um, and But furthermore, there's a distinction between male and female, meaning we have separate spaces. This could mean, for example, different gender roles, but it's not only gender roles. It's just the simple fact that males change in the same locker room and females change in the same locker room. And to mix that up is to go against human ways, to, to go against the distinctions that make for human beings. And Suza continues, for human ways, none is without distinctions. Of distinctions, none are greater than social divisions. And of social divisions, none are greater than rituals. And of rituals, none are those greater than the sage kings. We'll have to unpack this. Social divisions are important because this helps us specialize and therefore become productive as a society, whereas animals, just, they just do everything on their own. Um, I mean, it's not like there's a particular wolf that is responsible for the, the hunting, whereas another wolf, you know, is proper, uh, you know, um, responsible for, you know, splitting up the meat or, you know, whatever. You know, there's just no specialization, but it goes more than specialization. Distinction, uh, the social divisions has to do with who gets honored and the basis of which people get honored is on their virtue and their, and their wisdom. So we have distinctions based off of, of, of that. And, um, and so to get rid of that, to, to try to enforce equality is to return to a bestial, a beastly way of life. Okay. And that's why you, when you find any kind of society that, becomes more and more obsessed with equality and fixated upon it, whether we're talking about communism or uh, you know, certain kind of democratic regimes. Uh, what we see is a uh, human culture really becoming worse and worse, degenerating, collapsing. If you want a good example of that, you can go to, uh, you can go to California. Uh, social divisions, um, they need to be proper social divisions. They can't be just arbitrary, right? So if you are elevating these people who are really petty, all they know is how to do stuff like make money. That's all they're obsessed with or make very low level entertainment. And these guys get to be um, put into high positions. 
this is not proper social divisions. And that's why um, we have rituals within social divisions and beyond that, specifically those of the sage kings because they create the proper order. Rituals. Um, rituals are that which beautify and contain proper order. So proper rituals contain proper order and they make them beautiful. So when you make a distinction between the individual called the husband and the individual called the wife and separate them from other uh, other males and females out there, and you do that through a wedding ceremony, the wedding ceremony is a ritual and it's creating a distinction between this married couple and other people out there, right? And it's making that beautiful. So you're not just going out there and ringing a bell and saying, hey, everybody, Jane and John are now married. Uh, don't try to hit on them, right? Don't try to date them, etc. That's really crass. That's not beautiful. So instead, human cultures have things like weddings. It sends the same message, right? Don't bother these two as husband and wife, right? Uh, we're separate. They're separate in this way, but it's done in a very beautiful way, right? In a, in a way that creates for more harmony between husband and wife, but also uh, just generally in the community. And the most beautiful rituals are found in the uh, cultures led by the sage kings. So this is something to, else to talk about that good government is responsible for culture. If you have a bad culture, you necessarily have a bad government. So if you think your, your culture is bad, you should look at your government. And if you think your government is bad, you should also start to look at the system of governing. Maybe it actually doesn't work. Okay, maybe and it's not maybe just only communism that's a bad system of government. Okay, so um, if you wish to weigh the uh, understand the way of the Joe, then understand, then examine the gentlemen whom their people valued. What does this mean? The way of the Joe again. The Joe is especially at the beginning is a role model uh, dynasty. And over time, over a thousand years, things inevitably change. Even very conservative and traditional-minded societies inevitably change. Uh, change is impossible to prevent. Uh, so, and, and this is something that kind of bugs me as somebody who studies the Joseon dynasty a lot. People just talk about the Joseon dynasty. Well, that dynasty is 500 years old. You know, you're just going to have a lot of changes. Even if everybody agrees that uh, to be traditional, you inevitably have changes. You inevitably have changes. And um, the Joseon dynasty that you get at the first hundred years is different from the Joseon dynasty of the last hundred years and the middle hundred years. Those are very different uh, things, even though they, um, you know, try their best to keep to the, the right principles. But let's look at this. If you want to understand the way the Zhou, the Zhou dynasty, then examine the, the Junzhu whom their people valued, the noblemen that people valued. Why is this important? Because it's virtuous people that is the most valuable. It's not a set of laws. It's not even a particular kind of constitution. In fact, the constitution, the, the thing that it should do is to best guarantee or ensure that virtuous people are those uh, will end up filling top positions. 
virtuous people will end up filling top positions. That's what your constitution should be mostly about and not really about other things. Because if you have virtuous people at the top, you're going to have good leaders who are righteous, who are ren, compassionate, uh, compassionate and moral, and they are going to want to help people and they're going to be wise. That's the kind of leaders you have. If you have those leaders, you don't really need to have these you know, millions and millions of lines of written law that we have today. And much of which don't get enforced, much of which gets ignored. And is actually, if you try to follow every letter of the, of the whole accumulated law in any society, I don't think you actually could. I'm pretty sure all of us break laws without realizing it because there's just so many of them. So if you want to understand the way of the Zhou, this ideal dynasty, then examine the noblemen whom their people valued. Um, the next part I want to talk about is this line. The reckless person says the dispositions of the world in ancient times and the present time are different. So they have to require different ways for ordering chaos. The, the masses are misled for this by this. Okay, so first, what, the idea here is that, oh, well, times are just different today. And people will say this all the time today. They'll say, oh, we have different technology. Oh, these events happen. For example, um, I had to, you know, I had to go live through September 11th. And people would say five years, the, the, the you know, years from then, uh, oh, well, things are different now because of 9-11. Well, actually, no, things are not different. Things are not different. It's not like uh, this couldn't have happened 50 years ago. And it's not like things, you know, uh, this couldn't have happened before then. Um, so you don't have to think that, oh, now that things are different, um, we have to completely change our ways. The solutions are must be different. Technology may come and go, but human nature, what we're born with, what we start off liking and disliking um, in terms of warmth and food and money and social status, these are all the same. So all you know, human beings are born into the world mostly the same in certain ways. We might not have all the same intelligence or we might not have all the same, um, I don't know, facial features or body parts, but, you know, going back to this paragraph, desiring food when hungry, desiring warmth when cold, desiring rest when tired, liking the beneficial and hating the harmful, these are things people have from birth, right? So, um, the technology might change, but human beings are still born the same way. Okay, let's see what Shunza has to say about this foolish idea that well, now that the world is different because of technology or because of a different culture or whatever, that they now we require different solutions. Right? Um, the masses are misled for this, by this. Masses are misled by this for they have, are foolish and have no arguments, are boorish and have no proper measure. They can be deceived about what they see before them. How much more so in the case of reports about a thousand ages past. These reckless people can be deceived about what is within their own homes. 
how much more in the case of what has happened beyond a thousand ages past. All right, so I'm going to pause here. Basically, Shunzi is saying the masses are foolish, right? They have they have no arguments, meaning they're not very intelligent. They have arguments of a sort, but they're not very good arguments. You know, if you if you look at social media, like places like Reddit or wherever, uh, people say a lot of stuff, and they are a kind of argument, but they're bad arguments. They're weak arguments or they're foolish arguments, and uh, most you know, usually it's not worth trying to correct people like this. Um, they're just too lacking in intelligence and sincerity and logic to be able to admit that they're incorrect. So um, it's not it's really a waste of time to try to convince people. Uh, most people occasionally they'll find somebody who is worth arguing with because he's sincere, he's smart enough, and he really wants the truth. These people you can argue with, but don't just argue with random people on the internet. Uh, so the, the, the masses are foolish. They have no arguments. They're boorish, meaning they have a very crude understanding of reality. They're not acquainted with the higher things. They're, they're not acquainted with higher wisdom. They don't, they're not acquainted with things of beauty. They are just boorish. They like to watch their television, their easy humor, their sports, and be content in this. Uh, they have no proper measure. In other words, they don't know of the various things out there, and they can't properly weigh one thing as being far more important than the other. So they do things that like treasure money or treasure material possessions like their car, rather than really what's truly important. Uh, I know somebody has a bunch of cars, has you know, and and has one ch a child and thinks he doesn't want more children because apparently. You know, it's hard to have children, but then my question is, why do you have all this money poured into these various cars? It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, okay, now we get to this part. How is it that the sage is not deceived? I say it is because the sage is one who makes himself a measure. And so he uses his person to measure other people. He uses his dispositions to measure the dispositions of others. He uses his class to measure the things of the same class. He uses words to measure accomplishments. He uses a way to observe all completely. There's one measure for ancient times and the present. And the present. So long as one does not contravene the proper class of things. Even though a long time has passed, the same order obtains. Hence, one may face what is devious and twisted without being confused. And one may observe a jumble of things without being misled because one measures them thus. Again, people are born the same as a thousand years ago as today. And so the way to cultivate them towards goodness, the way to make society harmonious and ordered, the way to make people happy is not going to fundamentally change. Certain technologies make things more convenient, make certain people who own them and use them more powerful, make communication faster. But ultimately, you need to go back to the same fundamentals. Virtuous leaders need to be at the top. You need to have a healthy culture that's, that supports things like good marriage, good family, proper relations between father and son, proper relations between husband and wife, proper relations between neighbors. You need to have certain holidays 
you need to have smart people make decisions, capable people make decisions. You need to have virtuous people um, cultivate Ren in the, the culture and provide for E. You need to have music that promotes beauty and promotes goodness in the hearts of, of its listeners. You need to have all these things regardless of whether the internet exists, whether or not um, oil allows your vehicle to drive uh, 100 miles in a couple of hours. These things do not change the fundamental ways of what uh, the fundamental things that work and do not work. So don't get distracted by the technology. Okay, the, the next part here is um, that I want to talk about is whatever words do not agree with the former kings or do not accord with ritual and E are to be called vile words. Why? Because ritual and E contain in them the everlasting moral principles that are universal. Shinzo is not a moral relativist. He does not think that different cultures, um, just because different cultures have different understandings of righteousness and morality, that it's, you know, doesn't exist ultimately or objectively. The reality is that some cultures are better at understanding and enforcing E and others are not. And the reality is some rituals are more beautiful than others. And some rituals are flat out wrong. There's a kind of ritual that uh, some people practice at the weddings. And this is where um, the, right, you know, after um, the bride and groom come to the altar, then the groom goes underneath the bride's dress, takes out the garter belt, tosses it to the uh, bunch of single men. This is obviously wrong because it contains the wrong idea of morality. It contains a wrong understanding of the relationship. The husband and wife are intimately together. The garter belt is an intimate piece of clothing. So for the groom to throw that intimate piece of clothing to a bunch of other men, that goes against what a marriage is about. Therefore, that goes against what a wedding is about. And this is an evil uh, part of the ceremony. So if you do not accord with proper ritual and the correct E, the correct morality, whatever doesn't accord with it, whatever words that do not accord with it, do not agree with it, they are vile words. They're evil. They're perverse. Even if they are, even if they are keenly argued, the Jinja will not listen to them. So somebody can make an argument for why this is just for fun and it's not harmful. The Jinja does not listen to them because their conclusion is incorrect. So um, the ways of the former king, of course, contain a kind of E and, and Li um, that is at least correct. Right? So not all rituals have to be the same in every culture. And in fact, um, in the early days of the Joseon dynasty, uh, King Sejong was one of the kings that uh, you know looked at Chinese customs and rituals and then he, he knew it was, not, uh, it was not healthy to just directly import them from China, um, but it was better to look at them, look at the principles underlying them, and then look at what Korean customs already are, and then, and then 
as long as the Korean custom could be changed to reflect better the moral principles underlying the rituals, that's good enough. And that's better for the Korean people. Because some of it is just something, you know, like, for example, is it important that the wedding dress be white versus, uh, you know, a different color? Uh, does it have to be one form versus another? No, that's not really that important, right? But what's important is a, is that you distinguish the, the bride and groom as being married into husband and wife. That's what's important. So the principles that the, that the ceremony symbolizes, that's what's important. The exact way that the ceremony is conducted, that can be different from culture to culture. E is a little different because E has more to do with abstract morality, abstract righteousness. So the principles should be the same, but the laws, the specific laws uh, that implement them, that can be a little different. Okay, that can have some difference from country to country. Uh, so one country, they might, um, you know, they might illegalize something. Another country doesn't feel like they need to illegalize that. Um, but you, you implement laws based on what's going on at the time, you know. Um, you're not necessarily writing laws to exist for a thousand years undisturbed. So you, you produce new laws as needed, but you can also get rid of old laws um, when situations change, as long as E and Ren form the principle from which you do implement or get rid of old law. All right, there's this line. The gentleman is sure to engage in argument. Everyone enjoys speaking about what he considers good, and the gentleman especially so. So, um, by argument, Shunzi does not mean yelling and screaming at somebody or, um, you know, contending with them with words to, in order to win a debate and get people to admire you. He's not talking about that. He's, he's, he's talking about basically teaching others what is true and what is right what is correct. He's talking about teaching, he's talking about enlightening other people, and he's also talking about chastising what is wrong in order so that we have some improvement. There's a section about the difficulties of persuasion. It's interesting. Um, basically, his method is to raise remote parallels. Um, uh, basically, you use what is near to help somebody understand what is far. Uh, this this is kind of more about you know um, you, if you're just a teacher to some students, you can take some of this advice. I think specifically what Shunza has in mind here is uh, teaching somebody who's your lord or your king uh, as a minister. So he says, in such cases, one cannot approach things 
directly. Why? Because this power, this person has power over you, but moreover, um, you know, assuming that he's not a tyrant, it's, it's important to not embarrass your king or your lord or even your colleagues who are other ministers around you. So that's why he says one cannot approach, in such cases, one cannot approach things directly. But if you raise remote parallels, um, you do risk being misunderstood. But on the other hand, if you cite closer events, like you know the things that people have done in the same country around the same time, you risk being crude. Um, you know, people feel very emotionally about things that have happened recently, not so much about things that happened a thousand years ago. So uh, people talk about Genghis Khan pretty lightly today, even though he caused a lot of people to die. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, people get very touchy when, you know, um, be, be very sensitive when they're talking about things that happened during World War II, because it's very recent. Uh, one who is good at it, persuasion, falls between these two. He is sure to raise remote parallels without being misunderstood and can cite closer events without being crude. In other words, he is doing that carefully with sensitivity um, and with accuracy. Um, but more important things come later in this paragraph. He measures himself with an ink line, and so he could be a model and standard for all under heaven. He is wise, but can tolerate the foolish. Um, he is broadly learned, but can tolerate the shallow. Tolerating doesn't mean you allow it to happen, but you're, taking, you're being patient with it. Okay. Um, in other words, you're not lashing out. This is something that people don't really do today, uh, especially certain people who, um, you know, they're very angry and they just lash out on people. They, they aren't tolerant. They're not taking an attitude of patience. It's ungraceful. And ultimately, people do not take them seriously because they behave like children, you know, throwing a tantrum. Okay, so this is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it takes a lot of skill. This is very much in the world of social skill. And I'm still learning how to do this myself. And you can always get better at something like this as you grow older. Okay, he calls this the method of inclusiveness. More, more, um, more about argumentation. Um, the gentleman argues, when the gentleman argues, he speaks of Ren. Everything connects back to noblest humanity, uh, what's noble about humanity, um, what's virtuous about human beings. Okay. E is an extension of Ren, ultimately. Arguing about minor affair, um, matters is not good as perceiving the starting points of affairs, and perceiving the starting points of affairs is not as good as perceiving how to adhere to one station. This is line 242. To, um, I haven't been seeing the line numbers recently. Um, I do apologize for that, but uh, I have been quoting here uh, throughout the text. Arguing about minor matters is not as good as perceiving the starting points of affairs. And perceiving the starting points of affairs is not as good as perceiving how to adhere to one's station. Okay, let's take this apart. Um, a lot of people argue about minor matters. They don't start at the, um, the fundamentals. I think this is what she was just saying here. The fundamentals is more important than little details, um, little minor matters. So what would be a good example of this would be um, 
um, asking questions like, why are people not getting married? A, my, a more minor marry, uh, matter is something like, uh, you know, how do we make sure um, that people don't get divorced as often? That's a pretty important thing, but we're not, you know, we're not perceiving the starting point of affairs. The starting point goes back to some more fundamental matters. So your ability to understand the difference between the beginnings and ends, the causes and the effects is really important. If you are concerned about something like, uh, you know, the violence and the crime out in society, the starting point is to ask, what kind of families do they come from? What do people feel about the future? Do they feel hopeless? Do they feel optimistic? Those are the kind of questions that you want to ask. Perceiving the starting point of affairs is not as good as perceiving how to adhere to one station. This is about hierarchy again, right? So this kind of goes back to this general idea of um, having one, having a good hierarchy, but two, as an individual, once you find yourself in that hierarchy, knowing what to do within that, right? So if you're just an ordinary person, you know, say you're a factory worker or an office worker, you have a station in life. And rather than thinking too much about politics and how to vote one way or the other, because you're just one vote out of hundreds of millions anyway, um, why don't you focus on, and you have a family, why don't you focus on being a good husband? Or if you're um, you know, a mother, why don't you focus on being a good mother? You have a station in life. So adhere to that. But of course, more largely, more abstractly speaking, we're talking about um, being somebody who, uh, or having a society where we do have people, um, we have a hierarchy and people have different stations in life and they know how to hit, adhere to that. Okay, Because if everybody follows the proper station in life and the hierarchy is good, then you'll have good leadership and that leadership will know uh, will be wise and perceive the starting point of affairs. And so more minor things, more minor details like raising tax revenue um, from this amount to this amount or cutting taxes or you know whatever it is that you want to do. Since you have the fundamentals, you don't have to worry too much about those minor details. It's very easy. But if, if you try to tackle all these minor details directly without looking at the more fundamental issues behind them, you're never going to solve the minor details. I, I think this makes sense, right? I, uh, hopefully, um, I don't have to go into a million examples for you to understand. Okay, line 260, this is where um, Shruza starts to talk about rhetoricians. With respect to yet another sort of person, Shruza says, if one listens to his arguments, his, his, his words, his arguments are niggling and without unifying order. In other words, he just likes to t argue about very different topics. They're not really related to each other. There's no one string that connects them. He has 
uh, opinion here and that's completely unrelated to the opinion there. So um, that's the kind of person he is. So for example, um, he might say that he, um, okay, I'll, 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 give you, I'll give you an example. Um, he's against abortion, but at the same time, he, he also believes that um, nobody should get any kind of financial help um, if he loses his job. You know? Or um, one person believes, uh, you know, another example would be somebody who is all about vegetarianism. You know, he's a, um, he would never hurt a human being or I mean, sorry, an animal. But you know, he believes that um, it's totally okay to ignore your alien parents um, and it's okay to um, you know have uh, use abortion as a form of birth control. Well, th there's sort of this inconsistency among having these set different sets of beliefs, right? So that's what it means to have arguments without unifying order. Uh, what another? Ex um, okay, so one more example of this, you know. Um, or, I mean, another aspect of this is, what does it mean to have niggling arguments? They're just kind of these annoying arguments that people just kind of construct in order to win debates. They just want to win the debate, in other words, okay? Um, if one employs such a person, he, then he is full of deception without accomplishment. Uh, above, he is un incapable of following the enlightened kings. Below, he is incapable of harmonizing the people. Nevertheless, the smoothness of his tongue is such that the chattering has a certain measure to it, so that he is capable of becoming one of those who engage in strange exaggerations and bold haughtiness. Such a one is called the mild man's hero. Okay, uh, there's a lot of politicians who fit this term. And, uh, you know, whatever side you are on, you could point easily at the other side and find a lot of people. And, but the nature of uh, electoral politics is that, well, the guys on your side are like this too. Okay, and so you've got a lot of these people. Um, they're incapable of har bringing harmony to society. Um, instead, they're quick-witted or they're just smooth with their tongue, and or they're clever with their tongue, and so they engage in stranger exaggerations and bold haughtiness. Um, now, I like the next line. When sage kings arise, these are the ones they first execute. And then after that come the robbers and villains. For robbers and villains can be changed, but these people cannot be changed. And he ends with this part. I think that's masterful because these people out there who um, steal and rob they are usually doing this because out of desperation. Robbers um, and thieves, they know that what they're doing is inherently dangerous. And they're usually doing it out of desperation. I'm not saying that they're all, all these guys are just trying to, you know, steal medicine for their dying kids or something like that. I know that's not the case. So just so it it. But all these people are just doing that. But these people can be changed, these people can be educated because what they're suffering from is just kind of materialistic pettiness. On the other hand, 
if there's a certain kind of person, he is already intelligent, and he has perverted himself enough to be able to argue fiercely for wrong things in order to gain more power, there's a sort of sociopathy about these people. And they are really corrupt in their, um, in, in their soul. Um, and these people you can't really change because they've been so morally and spiritually perverted. And so you execute these people and they also long-term do much more damage because of the, because these are the uh, vile person's hero, because these guys are very good at manipulating the petty people, the masses, the ignorant masses who are not very um, well cultivated. Um, they do a lot of damage in a lot of intangible ways. You know, they cause people to get divorces. They cause children to hate their parents. They cause people to turn to violence. They cause people to support things that are ultimately bad. And these are true, truly evil people. And so that's why when sage kings arise, these are the ones they first execute because they are encouraging everybody else to be evil and to think in evil ways. So this is an excellent chapter. Um, you know, as we go further and further into the Sunzo, there'll be more and more focused chapters. But this is the first chapter I would say that is fairly focused. It tackles the question of what makes human beings human beings. And the answer, of course, overall is that it is their virtue. And how do you get people to become, you know, the masses to become virtuous? How do you even get kings to become more virtuous? He discusses that as well in this chapter. You have to argue, you have to persuade, and there's ways about that. And the ways of, of good kings, of virtuous sage kings, are the ways of Li, ritual, Yi, and Ren. Those are the three central things that are foundations um, and comprise the core essence of the ways of the former kings that work so well. Human nature doesn't, uh, you know, human nature by which Shenzhou uh, means what you're born as, that doesn't change um, over time. Thousands of years can pass and that doesn't change. Um, certainly human nature, what we're born as does isn't different. Now, how we're raised today is very different than a thousand years ago, but the human beings were born as, that's fundamentally the same. And so finally, we get to the end of the chapter, sage kings execute those who convince other people, the masses, to be evil. So already we see a lot of hints as to this idea of human nature and how to, how to work on human nature so that we get virtuous human beings, so that we get harmonious and well-ordered societies. So we get abundancy in material goods and human happiness.